Thank you both. Well, our hearts must be panting after the living God to come out on a day like this. Daylight savings time, 17 degrees, cloudy, snowy. Irony alert here, but I'm about to say, I'll give out extra brownie points for your coming to hear about grace. <laughs> here we are as God's people. It is good to be together. Our call to worship this morning is taken from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 60, and I've set it up as a responsive reading. So let us read responsibly. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. O oh, worship the King, all glorious above. Let's stand and sing to his glory. Amen. Have a seat if you would, please. All right. Very good. A welcome to you today. I want to um, thank you for being a part of our worship today, both on site as we've gathered, but also online as we live stream and recorded. Um, again, to those of you who are worshiping with us from Hawaii, we're thinking of you. Uh, on days like this. But here we are. I'm glad that you can be a part of things. Uh, quick word for today. Uh, we'll have our fellowship time in the library, coffee, donuts, some time to gather at the conclusion of the service. And then at 10.15, uh, the pastoral follow-up that I often do with time to kind of interact, ask questions. Um, I think a church should be the safest, best place for people with questions about faith to come. 
and to ask those questions and to be engaged to hear not the moralistic churchianity that so pervades the world, but to hear the gospel of God's grace with, which Jesus gave his life for. And so I've set aside this time after most of our worship services to give people an opportunity to ask me questions, to dig into the sermon some, to look at things. So uh, let's be a part of that. I wanna share something with you right now that has already passed. Yet Friday and Saturday, we were a part as Hardawike of the Feed My Starving Children mobile packing. And We've got this slide here. I just got this morning. Um, we had 346 volunteers pack 396 boxes, which means 85,536 meals. And that means that 234 kids will get one meal a day for one year. What this is, is high nutrition meals that can be shipped all over the world. We often send them to schools so that parents can send their kids to school, get a meal, get an education, have opportunities, hear the gospel. But there's something else we discovered yesterday when we were done. Um, yeah, the, the other thing I want to say, celebration, three cheers. We went from the youngest to the most senior, I believe. To participate in Feed My Starving Children, you've got to be at least as old as Luke Steinwick, Steenweich, sorry, boy, I'm getting all, as old as Luke, but also as young as Marion Hill. So we covered the range, and I'm very thankful for that. Um, Mary's in the back there saying, what do you mean, young ass? <laughs> um, we were one of four churches, and we heard this news at the finish of Feed My Starving Children. This organization has been distributing food, has had infrastructure and relationships in both Ukraine and Poland for eight years. And so as we were able to pack, they are set up and have already been distributing food there. When you watch the news about Ukraine, realize that we were able to pack food that goes into the system that's already been delivering food on the ground to refugees. This is the message from their CEO on Wednesday. The CEO of Feed My Starving Children, you know, we are facing a humanitarian crisis in Ukraine. We have been there for eight years, feeding refugees, feeding elderly and others. We've got a million and a half meals on the way to Ukraine and partners ready to use those meals. We've got partners working with refugees in Poland, Moldova, Romania, and those partners are requesting two million additional meals. We know that's not the end of it. We know we will be there and the need will be greater than that. We need your help. In addition to what's going on in Ukraine, we also have other parts of the world. The Horn of Africa is experiencing a tremendous drought. Haiti and Myanmar are both experiencing uh, just a lot of civil unrest and need food drastically. We can produce this food. We need your help. So I'm gonna ask you to do two things. Please pray, pray for peace, and then help us financially. Go to fmsc.org and donate today. Help us make those meals. Help us get those meals to our partners overseas who will feed people who desperately need this food. Thank you all and God bless you. 
Hi, I'm Mark Crea, CEO. Great, thank you. And again, the little church building box that you'll see in the background, that money is going to feed my starving children if you want to uh, leave an offering as you head out. Friends, we'll pray, we'll give money, but yesterday we were packing a million and a half meals on the ground already, and we get to backfill for that. One of the reasons I'm excited to be a part of what God is doing at Heart of Wyke and invite you to, to be a part of that each step of the way is who would have known months ago when this started planning that we'd be meeting that need? Actually, our boss, because we work for one who's risen from the dead. That's what moves and motivates us. I'm thankful we could be a part of that. Um, thankful for your support in enabling us all to be a part of that. God can use his people who are available. I'm thankful for the faith that animates our hearts and lives. We've been a part of a long stream of believing people across centuries, across a multitude of cultures. And it's appropriate that this would be our question. You would think we actually planned things. <laughs> I just obey the one who's planning. Our question from Heidelberg Catechism, what do you understand by the providence of God? Together, the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Let's sing together the anthem we heard at the beginning, As the Deer, and we'll have a second uh, verse to that as well. We stand.
Amen. Have a seat if you would. Some thoughts as we come to this moment of prayer. Um, it seems to me that for most of us as Americans, our sense of life's meaning is, is deeply shaped by the idea of cause and effect. Everything that happens in life is the effect or the result of some prior cause. Now, let me say cause and effect explains a lot of our day-to-day -day life. It's the foundation of science and the development of technology, and it has led to many of my favorite creature comforts, things like indoor plumbing and medicine, for example. Big fan of both. I'm a fan and supporter of cause and effect. But a world of cause and effect is not always the most helpful way to think about prayer. Stop for a moment and let's do that. If the only causes that can affect this world are natural, there really is little reason to pray in the first place. If there is only a physical reality for cause and effect to operate in, then don't waste your time Go look for a physical cause for the effect that you want. You see, if it's purely measurable cause and purely measurable effect, then that's where you look. But there's more to prayer than just naturalistic cause and effect. If we take that mindset to prayer, then prayer might just be the cause of a measurable calming effect that we like for our life. But prayer is meant to be more than just calming. Now, there are ways we can bring that cause and effect perspective into our prayer life. And I want to point this out. Some people add a God dimension to their thinking, some sort of transcendence. So there's transcendence and there's nature. And prayer becomes trying to set off a transcendent cause to get the physical effect that we desire. As I listen to myself, this is often what I mean when I say something like, prayer works. I launched this transcendent cause through prayer to get this physical effect. It's as if to say prayer works in getting the effect I want by invoking some transcendent reality. You see, we've just added a dimension in that way. In this way, prayer works until it doesn't. Until it doesn't get the effect I'm hoping for, then I begin to question the cause. And suddenly I'm asking, why was my prayer not answered? I did the cause, why don't I get the effect? Or I'll ask, why can't this prayer cause that to happen? We eventually stop praying or begin to maybe add a tag that's polite in this way, thy will be done. We essentially stop praying or we get busy looking for something else that might cause the effect that we desire in a way we can control. Cause and effect works for indoor plumbing. It's not the best model for thinking about prayer. I cause an effect. What if we were to not make cause and effect central to our prayer life, but instead made the central point of prayer to be relationship with God, joining in His work in the world, beginning with a heart that yearns to be with God, just like we sang. 
said, let me be with you. Let me give my prayer and my life to your work in this world. Prayer would not be first about the effects, and the, but instead it would be first about relationship with God and then joining him in his activity and work. The fruit of the Spirit in us in this world would be the effect that our relationship with God in prayer would cause and work through. The God we join in prayer works in our lives and bears fruit in the world in which we live. We begin to say, thank you, Lord, that you have empowered and invited us to join you in your work because we've started first with relationship. I think it's a good time to try to step away from cause and effect prayer into relational prayer. Will you join me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that because of what Jesus did on the cross, the doorway to your throne room is empty. And we enter in not as beggars or as traitors, people who barter, but we enter in as deeply loved, fully adopted children. And we say, Abba, Father, there certainly are needs that we bring to you, Abba, Father. And because you love us, you call us to share those and to speak those. And so we do pray for Heart Awake Ministries, that you would guide us as a body, Heavenly Father. Thank you for the way you providentially erased, established our mobile pack yesterday with Feed My Starving Children to be part of getting food to the Ukraine and to Poland and refugees. We're amazed. Continue to work through Neighbors Plus and our student ministries and our small groups and our life together. We pray for our friend, Pastor Aaron, as he preaches your word at Watershed, and Pastor Lewis Ford, who'll be substituting for JB Infusion. We thank you for Missy Owen, that'll meet right here in a few hours, and for Pastor Florencio. Father, bless them and extend their work into this part of our community. We thank you that you've called us as your children and identified us as celebration. And so it is, Father, we would bring to you those among us. The list is long, so I just hit these topics. And I'll give you a time to fill in. We, we pray for those among us in your circle of relationships. Lift up the name of those who are sick. And, Father, sometimes the, the journey of treatment or of recovery is just as challenging. And so, Abba, Father, we bring to you our friends and family members who are recovering. And Father, for those who grieve loss, we know that's real. We know that one day it will come to an end because the old order of things will be passed away and the new order of things will be established. But in this moment, we join with those in our midst who grieve. Daddy, touch them by your Holy Spirit. Now, Father, as we gather around your throne, 
we pray for the other concerns of our life and in our regular authority prayer focus. We pray for our federal government and for President Biden and Vice President Harris, for the Michigan senators, Debbie Stabenow and Gary Peters, for our area representatives, Bill Heisinger, Peter Meyer, and Fred Upton. Abba, Father, we pray that you would guide these people in the established rule of law that you've given to us, but you'd guide them through difficult decisions right now, internationally, domestically, in the midst of a very confused and broken culture. Use them and make their hearts as a river in your hand. We pray too for our Supreme Court. Oh, Abba Father, thank you that you've spoken to us through the Apostle Paul when he wrote in Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, Father, that was Paul writing about you. That you, our Father, are the God of hope. And so, Father, we're reminded as the God of hope that you call us to hope as surely as you called us to be your deeply loved and fully adopted children. Remind us each day that the hope you give us is not a spiritual valium to numb us to the pain of our broken world, but the hope that you give us from the cross of your Son is a radical, daily revaluing of all things from the perspective of eternity. I see the beauty of this world not as an end in itself, but as a pointer to the greatness of you, Father. Father, thank you that the gospel hope you give is not pie in the sky, but is grace for this moment. And so for this moment where there's suffering or sadness, where there's joy, where there's need, where there's opportunity to serve, we will enter in empowered by your grace, for your hope cannot and will not disappoint us. Oh, Father, open the eyes of our heart and show us everything that you want us to see this day. Thank you that you want us to see that you've called us around your throne as deeply loved children, and you're teaching us to pray, even as we would use together with one voice the words that Jesus gave us, saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen and amen. Well, we're preaching through the book of Exodus, the whole book in just eight weeks. And so as we divided things up, I've got a big task. We're going from Exodus chapter 5 to 15. It's one contiguous event, really, that's covered there from Moses arriving in Egypt through the 10 plagues that highlight to the Passover. Next week we'll be at the Lord's Supper and the communion table that roots to that Passover. And then we get to the actual crossing of the Red Sea today. Out of those 10 chapters, I'm going to focus on a few key verses. Um, so follow with me in these. Let me say that I've also given some 
uh, background to several questions that often come with these passages on our blog. I won't be able to deal with them extensively in the sermon just because of time. I, I've got to go to work tomorrow. So uh, I'll put those to the blog and we'll hear the scripture today. These are the verses I want to focus on beginning at Exodus chapter 14 and verse 5. Hear God's word. Now, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about everything and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go. Oh, and underline this. And we have lost their services. So Pharaoh had his chariot made ready and he took his army with him. Several verses later, we'll pick up. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? As if that was fun. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. And then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Notice we go from be still to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the sea so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who had been traveling, and notice this location, in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them as if to say to them and to us, the God of angel armies has your back. From leading to protecting, he's got us covered. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that centuries ago, perhaps 30 centuries ago, a people were desperate and in slavery. And you entered that moment of history and you did what it took to have them rescued. That in a extraordinary sense, this moment far ago in the distant uh, mists of history remind us that you are a God who enters life as we know it and rescues us in the midst of it. Help us to read and see the great fullness of that as it came to pass in God the Son's incarnation and death and resurrection that we now live in a renewed power and hope and will one day be established as the final and true power. We thank you for your kindness to us, Lord Jesus. 
We pray that you'd guide us in the fullness of your grace. Care for your people. Guard them from my sin and confusion, but make yourself known. Thank you for this life and time together, for we pray in Jesus' name and all of God's people said together, amen and amen. Exodus overall is a book about rescue, but to rescue, you've got to have power. If you've ever been in trouble, fallen down a cliff, been in a place where things were out of your control, someone needed power. One of our family stories, I have a daughter who has a lifeguard within her first few days of work as a lifeguard, noticed from the stand a child in the bottom of the pool, blew her whistle, dived in, pulled that child from the floor, breathed life back into her. That child needed power from outside in order to be rescued. That's a theme that plays out through all of Exodus. And part of the the foundation of understanding the need for rescue and the power that meets us is the recognition that there is a bondage going on. One of the things in this 10 chapter passage we see Exodus is a story of rescue, but there's bondage at the very root of things. Egypt is a place of bondage. And I want to point something out. It's interesting to note that at the end of the book of Genesis, if we were reading from cover to cover, Egypt would have been a place of provision. Do you remember the story of Joseph, who was providentially in the midst of hard times and betrayal, sent to Egypt? from the people of Israel, the family of Jacob at that point in history. And he rose to an authoritative position so that he could gather his brothers and their families and be provisioned. Egypt, at the end of Genesis, is a place of provision and of plenty and of good. But by the beginning of Exodus, Egypt is a place of bondage. Lots happens across 400 years. Now there's slavery and oppression, merciless labor, death of children. Do you remember Moses was providentially cared for as his generation of boys was being killed? We picked up the storyline last week with Moses, and one of the key things to learn from that is that like Joseph, Moses was providentially prepared for leadership. But he had to come to a point where he realized he was inadequate in his own power to do the release. Like Joseph, Moses was rescued from death. Moses, as an infant, he got the best education in the known world. He had the political power in the court of Pharaoh. But all of that was stripped from him because in his own power, all he could do was become a murderer, a failure and run for his life to the back of the desert. Moses had to come to a point where he recognized he was inadequate for the job. I talked last week about this idea, the psychological term that's popular now, imposter syndrome, and we had a great conversation about it after the the service with folks. And it's very interesting to, to ponder. Moses was not presenting himself as something he was not. No, he felt the pressure as imposter because he was called to something greater than he knew he was. 
struck me that that's an interesting difference. Moses is not saying, hey, you know what I am? Moses is called to something, and he realizes it's beyond him. I think it's kind of the same thing I felt as I held my first child. I'm called to something as a dad that's bigger than me. How do I live up to that? Well, by grace is the short answer. How many of us will be called by God into places and situations and circumstances that are beyond us? This is good news for you. You're not an imposter there. You are called of God, and the gospel has what you need. Moses was placed there. We will be placed in uncomfortable positions, but there's good news. Well, this story of rescue plays out. Israel, you look at them in these passages, they are inadequate for resistance. They lose their children to a merciless government. They just keep on making bricks. They complain more, but they just keep doing They get out of Egypt and they say, oh, we really want to stay there. Later on, even they'll say, don't you remember the food back in Egypt? They don't have what it takes. It's kind of like a Stockholm syndrome. Have you ever heard of that where the captor falls in love? The captive falls in love with the captor, cares for them. It's amazing to me in the larger text today, Israel says to Moses, didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians. I'm thinking, the ones who had your grandchildren killed? Serve those people? It would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert? You remember that part of the story in Exodus 3. Pharaoh was killing the sons. Friends, the theme that runs throughout Exodus is that it is the Lord who rescues It's not about Moses and his leadership. It's not about Israel and their growing strength. It's not about distraction by Pharaoh or his corruption. It's about the Lord. And he will regularly use inadequate people to rescue people who are inadequate to rescue themselves. That's how God's grace works. A key theme through the entire 10 chapters that we look at today is the Lord's power. He has power to rescue. It's not in the leaders he raises up. It's not in the people he rescues. It's not even in the corruption of those he rescues them from. He himself has the power to break the chains of bondage and to rescue people from their captivity. I want to reflect on this passage to better understand the slavery, the captivity, the bondage that holds those people. Because I think as we look at that, the bondage that holds them, we're going to begin to see some things about our own bondage and our own slavery. Bondage, slavery, the chains of brokenness on our hearts and minds is a, is a complex thing. We often look for ways to simplify it, a cause and effect, when there's more to it than simply meets the eye. Bondage can be personal. Pharaoh, in Exodus 14:56, we, we see that, uh, five through six, I'm sorry, we see that it talks about his heart being hardened. Here's Pharaoh who's making decisions that hold people in bondage, but something bigger than him is at work in him. Bondage can be personal. It can be about the actions and behaviors by persons on others. 
It's what someone else specifically does to people like us. Pharaoh is an embodiment of this. He's the ruler of Egypt. He's the director of their oppression. And he makes decisions that hold the people of Israel in slavery. But there's something at work here that's deep and and frightening. Pharaoh's heart gets hard. Now, there's a very good article that goes into more depth on this on our sermon resources blog. It's interesting, at each of the plagues, sometimes you see Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Sometimes you see it being hardened. Sometimes it just goes right on. What, what's happening here? How does one come to a hard heart? Well, I read this in light of how my own heart has gotten hard at times. Here's what I don't think happened. I don't think Pharaoh was walking along and says, you know what, Moses has a point. We've really been hard on these people. I, I need to be kinder and better to them. I'm going to let them go. Wait a minute. Something from outside is forcing me to be mean and angry. No. That's not how hardening of the heart works. The way hardening of the heart works is that I make a decision counter to God's purposes. And it works. And then I take another step. And another step, and another step. You see, God has created a world where consequences set up consequences that set up consequences. It's an order world where sinful decisions predispose you to more sinful decisions. No one commits adultery at its first moment. It's been pondered. It's been challenged. No one ruins their family's finances with their online gambling app on their phone the first day. They'll cover that loss for you is what I saw in the commercial. They've got crack dealers for marketing people. Let's get you addicted. Then, bit by bit, we will destroy your finances. That's how hearts get hardened. It's step by step. And we saw last week about how there's this cascade of consequences was the term I used. And Hebrews 11:25, it says that sin has its pleasures for a season. That the first steps are thrilling and exciting and they lead us on the way. This is Pharaoh's life. He's benefited from the sin of his oppression of Israel. And that leads them to even more ghastly oppression. See, it's interesting. Bondage has a personal consequence. And let me say right here, the response to that, when our hearts get hard, look to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, 34. He repents. There's a moment where he sees the glory of his kingdom and he says, "Ah, it's all about me. And he's struck with what seems to be a form of insanity. He lives like an animal until suddenly... He realizes the Lord is the God of glory, and he's restored. Repentance is the key to breaking down a hard heart and drawing close to God. It's not about trying harder or making up for it. It's turning to God in repentance. Look at Nebuchadnezzar. It's an interesting contrast. But you see, this bondage is personal. It's at work in a person, in Pharaoh. But it's also at work in a different way in the nation of Israel. They cry out in Exodus 14.10, leave us alone. 
They're held slaves, not by physical chains, but by their yearning for good food, for comfort. Eh, we'll compromise our kids, just don't make our life too hard. We want the blessings of living in civilization. Don't take me out in the desert and the risk that's there. Oh, it may cost, but, but it's better. There's this voice. It's personal. It's deep within. I often call it when we're working with people, the orphan voice that says, you know, you're not adequate. You're not deserving. You're unable. It's the voice of condemnation because it's not shining a light onto my brokenness. It's building a divide from the answer to my brokenness, God himself. That orphan voice that leaves us in slavery, that speaks to us words of condemnation and inadequacy when it challenges us to also perform, that's death. That's a personal form of bondage that the world may not even see, but drives people. Have you ever been driven by an inner sense of fear? Boy, I have. Have you ever had these moments where you're wondering about the consequences of obeying God. One of the challenges that I speak to young people about all the time is if you think that obeying God is gonna make you miss out on something you want, you're being lied to. I wanna tell you, I was living the life, playing rock and roll and everything with it, and I missed out on a lot of things that rock and roll offered, and at this stage, actually, within about five years, I realized I was glad to miss it. Obeying God will never cause you to miss something in life that you really want, even if it costs you your life. Well, bondage can be personal. It works both others on us and inside of us. Bondage can be systemic. It can be built in. Look at the slave drivers. They're just following orders. See, when you build a system when people build a system, a culture, a procedure, an economy, because it's built by sinners, it will have sin baked into it. I went back and read about the Nuremberg trials. And again and again, folks just said, I was only following orders. If you just follow the status quo of a broken system, that system will have you participating in brokenness. I'll tell you a fascinating thing I discovered this week. I want to get this right. I was unaware until uh, recently that in the chaos at the end of World War II, Allied forces collected samples of brain tissue from prominent Axis leaders. Sounds gruesome. Heinrich Himmler, the one who was the main architect of the Holocaust system of death camps, we studied his brain, Benito Mussolini, the leader of the Italian fascists. They're two prominent examples. And no doubt, if Adolf Hitler's body could ever have been found, his brain would have been studied as well. All this is to pursue some physical source of evil. What went wrong in their brain that they would think such a thing? There was more than a malformation in the structure of the brain that caused the death and destruction that resulted from their convictions and actions. There was more at work. They created a system that carried things along. 
Friends, I want to say again and again, if there's only naturalistic cause and effect, then we can, indeed we must, study, analyze, and identify what physical cause would lead to such a horrific effect. All so that we can control and ultimately, we hope, avoid those effects. But sometimes it's bigger than physical. There are systems. When um, the slave drivers do what they do, they say, this is what Pharaoh says. They, can, they don't have to be anti-Semitic to demand more bricks, no straw. They just follow the system. And here's a truth, friends. Sinners build organizations that are infected by sin. Occasionally, you'll see sinful things go on in churches. Anybody surprised by that? When you get sinners together, they build organizations that are infected by sin. Until Jesus comes back, the organizations, the cultures, the economies we build will be touched by the sin yet to be eradicated from our lives. That's why our Constitution has a way to amend it. Did those early founders write a great Constitution? I think so. Was it infected by their sin? Absolutely. You see that in the first 10, they call them amendments, the Bill of Rights. You see, we're going to need to evaluate systems, repent, and improve. Otherwise, we'll continue the sin. Now, again, let me say something here because I can sense folks are beginning to say, well, I've heard of that systemic sin. What's he talking about? If you've read my blogs over the past year or two, you understand that I'm no fan of critical theory when it's applied to race. It misses the point. But have you ever heard the story of the guy with that beautiful, fashionable watch that doesn't work? It's a fashion statement, and it tells the right time twice a day. I think critical theory applied to race is like a broken watch. It may be fashionable, and at times it may even intersect with truth but only about twice a day. It's the scripture here pointing to us that bondage can be built in to sin, to systems. But bondage is deeper than personal or just human systems. It's spiritual as well. You'll read about 10 different plagues from Exodus 7 to Exodus 12. Signs of power, acts disrupted. At the beginning, the Egyptian priests keep right up with Moses, but then they begin to get outdistanced, and there's these acts of power. Folks may are often not aware of it, but each of those plagues can be connected to the deities that the Egyptians worshipped, each one in a particular way. Now, it's a little hard to do it. It's distant in history, and the Egyptians worshipped upwards of 1,500 different deities. With that many, you could take almost any shot in the dark and offend one of their deities. I get that. But I want you to see that the point of Exodus in these plagues is not some random acts of power, God showing off, saying, look what I can do. It's the Lord taking the things that the Egyptians trusted in and loved and worshiped and said, I'm stronger 
Oh, you may love the Nile and find your comfort and food here, but I'm greater than the Nile. So part of what I see is that there will be times when the people of God find themselves loving idols. God has the power to confront our idols. Sometimes our bondage to our comfort, to our control, to our ability to provide for ourselves, takes the place of trusting God himself, and God himself will deal with that. See, the good news here is not that the evil and the bondage of our world is simply physical. It's deeper than that, and God is still powerful enough. The response to the reality of spiritual evil ought not to be denial. Oh, no. It ought not to be more science because that's a category error. It misses it. Our response to the reality of spiritual evil is the reality of the living God, the God of the Bible, who shown conclusively in the final death and resurrection of Jesus that he has power to rescue his people. That's the good news. Whatever bondage you carry, seen or unseen, the Lord is the first step. That's where it begins. I've presented you with what we'd call in a theology class, this won't be on the test, what I'd call a complex and nuanced view of sin and brokenness. That's the view of sin and brokenness that undergirds the gospel. Sin and brokenness in our world are complex. Sin and brokenness is personal. It's done to us. It's done by us. Sin and brokenness in our world is systemic. Just follow orders or ride with the status quo. Sin and brokenness is spiritual. There's a transcendent reality that affects our natural lives. It includes evil. I've said again and again, there's more to reality than meets the eye. In these 10 chapters, the Lord... The God of the Bible, the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is victorious in all these aspects. That's the good news. No matter how nuanced, no matter how complex the bondage of this world is, the Lord is bigger and stronger. Jesus has the power to set us free from every aspect of the slavery that grabs our souls. And I don't want to be simplistic at this point. Liberation may take time and intervention. It takes a working out. But the gospel of grace is our hope. It's where we go to get started. And so the question becomes this, friends. What is it that holds our hearts, your heart, my heart, in slavery? Oh, I can manage my presentation so you may not see it. I can justify it. I was trained in sin patterns in college. How to trust self rather than trust God. That's how you pass tests sometimes. What holds our heart? Is it personal? You know, a trauma sometimes will rest deep in us and drive us. I find when we feel we are right to be angry, boy, that sets us up for a slavery to that anger. Have you ever had regrets? If only I had, and again and again, that orphan voice. How about the systems? Vladimir Putin with 100,000 soldiers and tanks. That's a system that drives others. 
But there's other systems as well that make our decisions through habit for us. Are you in a position where you can prayerfully look to the systems that drive your world and ask, what's really behind that? How about spiritual? In Ephesians 6, Paul writes, we battle not against people, that is flesh and blood, but against strongholds and spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. The gospel gives us prayer where God will lead and guide us. It gives us scripture for us to understand, reflection in gospel community that we can begin one with the other to to recognize where we are held. It gives us self-reflection. Friends, I want to close with just two paragraphs from a, a New York Times Uh, opinion piece. I was floored to find this. One of my favorite writers now is um, Tish Harrison Warren. And in a previous Sunday column in the New York Times of all places, she writes an article on how Ash Wednesday causes us to confront death, but also brings us hope. Let me make sure I get, here we go. Amazing, it was the February 27th uh, edition of the Times. Ash Wednesday forces us to confront death, but also offers hope. Listen as she very carefully points to the slavery of heart that we often succumb to. She writes, Karl Marx famously called religion the opiate of the masses. He meant that faith can have a numbing effect, quelling hard questions, and hampering the work of justice in the here and now. He has a point. Religion has at times been used as an excuse by some to not work for change and to embrace a pie-in-the-sky quietism. Still, in my own life, and listen as she names part of the slavery of her own life. See if it rings a bell. In my own life, any numbing effects of religion don't hold a candle to binge-watching Netflix and a pint of Ben and Jerry's and a bourbon on the rocks. Like morphine, the pleasures of consumerism and creature comforts dull my notice of life, death, longing, and the pressing struggles of this world. I'll turn off the TV when it doesn't bring me comfort. But will I step into the freedom of being part of God's solution? She goes on to write, there are myriad reasons that wealth might dampen faith. But one is that those of us who are privileged and comparatively comfortable can insulate ourselves from death, suffering, and our own mortality in ways that others can't. Whether one is a churchgoer or not, when our bodies are strong, our stomachs are full, and we have high-speed internet and craft beer, questions of eternity seem less pressing. We surround ourselves with a world of comforts to insulate ourselves from the pain and being called to be part of bringing the gospel and God's deliverance in that moment. People be free to live in the power of a rescuing God. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for your goodness and grace. Help us to get a sense of where we ourselves are living less than our call to freedom, where we find ways to insulate ourselves from the threat and the brokenness of this world, 
Not that we should be um, presumptuous, but in obedience, you won't lead us to any place where we are less than eternally safe. So teach us, show us, guide us that Jesus came as the fullness of what Moses points to, a rescuer with the power to break free your people from the chains, the bondage, personal, systemic, spiritual, whatever it may be. We don't see our bondage as the final word because we have heard the call of Jesus to come and follow him. We thank you, King Eternal, that you have loved us, that you have called us as your children. By your grace, empower us to, to follow you wherever you would lead us. Fill us with strength and hope this day because of your goodness and grace. This we pray in the name of Jesus and all of God's people sit together. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing to the glory of God. Lead on, O King Eternal. Receive this blessing, the words of the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus, now to you. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen and amen.